So there are a uh, diminishing number of instances now where I feel like I'm the new guy here. Been here long enough that uh, I don't sit in situations very often anymore where it's the first time I've heard something or first time I've seen something about our church. Um, but I want to go back to the time as a new guy to give you a little little insight, to pull the covers back just a little bit, let you see how pastors work. One of my mentors early on made this comment to me. He said, uh, whenever you go to a new church, one of the things that you must do is you must quickly identify the sacred cows. Now, every church has their sacred cows. And so the instruction that I got took it a step further when he said, and remember this, you can shoot any cow in the pasture, but you better not shoot the sacred cow. You know what? That's wisdom. But I'm going to ignore it now, and uh, I'm going to go to not so much a sacred cow for us as a church. Matter of fact, it's not about that. Uh, I'm going to talk in this series that we've been working through uh, where we're looking at what's right about Christmas. And we're often in the, in the realms of the church world, we get very defensive or we can get very defensive about uh, what's going on outside of the church world when it comes to Christmas. And so it's, uh, it's something of a Christmas war, a, a cultural Christmas war, if you will, where we come into the Christmas season and we are defensive from the outset that Jesus is the reason for the season after all, and the rest of the world seems to be forgetting that. And uh, so what I wanted to do this year was to step into the Christmas season and remind us all about what's right about Christmas, especially as a gathered body church of El Paso as we seek to build bridges into that culture that's out beyond our walls. What's right about Christmas? And so we've talked about the crowds and as maddening as they are for us, uh, there are some things about the Christmas crowds that ought to really help us to come down to and remember uh, what our calling is to connect with people and connect people with the love and the life of Jesus Christ. The sacred cow that I want to take on today is the one that uh, I think universally across the Christmas spectrum, whether it's Christian people or non-Christian people, let's talk about Christmas songs. Uh, it's an interesting field. And uh, through the course of the week, uh, actually for several weeks, I've been trying to piece together different elements of the Christmas songs that we sing and the music of Christmas, if you want to say it that way. So this afternoon at 4.30, we will have the final presentation of our 54th annual Living Christmas Tree. And it's been an amazing thing. I, I just want to stop the sermon here for just a moment. And I want to acknowledge as, a, as in mass here, there's too many individual pieces or even too many different areas for me to highlight all of them. But those of you in our church who have been working on this living Christmas tree, whether in a support fashion or in the tree or standing around the bottom of the tree or sitting out here, and certainly uh, Elvin, I just want to say to all of you, it has been an incredible blessing to me and uh, I know to hundreds of people. We've packed this place out uh, three times now, and uh, we, uh, this afternoon is sold out, 
And if you still want to come, don't mind standing. We probably can let you in. I don't know what our fire code is, but uh, somebody can have my place as long as you do the last statement. But so, <laughs> y'all have done a wonderful job. So, Elvin, thank you to you and your people. We appreciate so much. So having said that, let me ask this question to get you thinking along the same lines with me this morning. Why do we do the living Christmas tree? Now, I don't want you to answer out loud, but I want you to process through this. Because for 54 years now, our church has said that's important enough for us to do it. So why do we do that? And, and let me just change the emphasis a little bit there. Why do we do that? Because there are a myriad of other things that we could do that we could try to get across the Christmas message. Churches all over the place are doing different things to try to communicate that. Why do we do that? I would suggest to you that the reason we do it is because it has proven to be an effective bridge-building tool into our community. I was stopped at the door. Well, I was at the door last night. One of the people coming out stopped to talk, talk to me for a little bit, and she said, and she's been in El Paso all of her life. She's a young adult. And she said, this is my first time to be here. And then she went on to say, but I don't want it to be my last time to be here. How, how can I know when these are scheduled in future years? If you could just stand back there and listen to some of the comments of people who come through here who are not First Baptist Church regulars and listen to their comments about how God used our musicians to connect with them. The reason we do it is because it's a great bridge-building tool into our community and we use music to do that. So I want you to think with me for a little bit about Christmas music and the songs of Christmas. If you happen to be a serious XM radio subscriber, uh, you should know this because of the different commercials that they give. But I didn't know it until I just went online and searched it. Do you know that Sirius XM, which is the satellite radio thing that I think it's the only one anymore, um, do you realize that they have 16 different holiday slash Christmas, because they don't all call them holiday, I mean Christmas, you know, uh, 16 different channels on Sirius XM radio because there are at least 16 different types of music, styles of music, where people want Christmas music 24 hours a day. And so you can go to the country Christmas channel if that's your bent. And if that's not your bent and you're a little more cultured, you my dad was a country music fan. I'm hoping he'll listen to this. Uh, but you can go to the Jazz Christmas Channel. And if that's not it for you, then you can go to the Navidad Christmas Channel. And if that doesn't do it for you, you can go to the traditional. And there's even, for all of you weepy types during Christmas, there's a Hallmark Christmas music channel on it. Walked through the living room yesterday morning. Teresa had some Hallmark on, and I just started crying just as I walked through just because. <laughs> you know, in our, back, to our, back to our tree performances, presentations I prefer. Um, you know, there's two sets to that. The early set I heard Elvin in one of the rehearsals call it the winter music set. And because it's not all specifically Christmas, but it all specifically ties to the Christmas season and the way we listen to the music that we have. And they're just those favorites, jingle bells and 
you know, those kind of songs. But the second set is where we get really serious about telling the Christmas story and emphasizing perspectives on Christmas that, that have legs for us, if you will, into the rest of the year. Christmas songs are such a big part of our Christmas celebrations that for me to stand up and start talking about that is always, there's always a danger there that somebody thinks that I'm just against anything that's not church and Christmas. But the reality is that uh, music might even be one of those constants across the spectrum that if we pulled it out of the Christmas season, many people would just be depressed about it. Where, where would you be without the music of Christmas, really? So I want to take us to a passage today, understanding that much of Christmas music has really nothing to do with Jesus Christ. You, you know that's true, right? I mean, after all, what, what, what's your favorite Christmas song? Now, mine, since you asked... Um, I'm really, I'm really drawn to the Grinch for Christmas song. <laughs> there are a few others that I like a lot. Probably, you know, I really like the the one where Schroeder, Schrader, the guy that plays the piano in the Charlie Brown stuff. I like his little song. There's no real words to it, but but I like that song. But really, probably my favorite Christmas song of all times, I heard the bells on Christmas Day because of the backstory to that particular song. I don't know what yours is, but, you know, we have some silly, silly Christmas songs. I mean, after all, what snowman have you ever seen that runs around town? And what reindeer have you ever seen that has a shiny nose that can fly? Those are just, and poor grandma got run over. We have silly Christmas songs. It's, but, but those songs have become so much a part of our culture that when we come to the Christmas season, I'm gonna, here's my, my basic point for you today. Those songs, even those silly ones, can trigger worship for us as disciples of Jesus Christ. Let me show you where I get that. We're in Luke chapter 1 today. And in Luke chapter 1, we pick up in the middle of the announcement part of the coming birth of Jesus Christ. He's not been born yet, but Luke gives us some of the backstory. Matter of fact, Luke gives us more of the backstory to those preceding days before the birth than any other gospel writer does. And as we come into this, I love what Luke does as he records what may well be the first ever Christmas song. Now, I'm not sure that that bears out. I mean, you could push that definition a little bit and say, well, technically it's not really a Christmas song. It's not about Jesus Christ, but it certainly fits into, well, let's just see what it says. We're in Luke chapter one and we begin reading in verse 46, but the backstory before we get to verse 46 is that the angel Gabriel has showed up to Mary and has said to her, good news, you're going to have a baby. And so we find this this development in Mary as she begins to process through in that initial encounter, but then as she goes to visit with her uh, with Elizabeth, uh, she records Luke records her song. So verse forty six it says, and Mary said, "My soul magnifies the Lord, 
and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown great strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped to serve in Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring. And I'm going to stop reading there because that's the conclusion of her song. You might quickly say, that doesn't sound like a Christmas song at all. Well, it's tied directly to the birth of the Savior. Most of us know this as the Magnificat, Mary's Magnificat. How many of you used the word Magnificat in a sermon, I mean, in a sentence this week? Probably not. It's not one of those terms we use. The, the title for this little section and for this song that Mary sings has actually, the Magnificat, comes from the Latin Vulgate translation of the New Testament. It's the word that means magnify. In my translation, it says in verse 46, my soul magnifies the Lord. Your translation, if you're reading King James, says it the same way. If you're reading the New International Version, it takes a different word there that means glorifies. So as we come to this, let's look a little bit at the term. Really, the message today is going to unpack that term as we find the basis for it in Mary's song. My soul magnifies the Lord. If we just really went to a kind of a rudimentary kind of definition of that word, magnifies, we all know, means to make bigger. On more than one occasion, I visit with people, and I'm, Teresa and I will leave in the morning to go check on my mom and my dad in East Texas, and I know that when I get there, I'm going to find one of those little magnification cards that lays over a text in a book, whether it's scripture or some other kind of book, and it's just a flimsy kind of a magnifying glass that you lay on the, on the top of the book and, or hold it up a little bit, and it makes, makes it bigger. That's this word which doesn't necessarily seem to fit when we start talking about what we're doing as we come to worship, which is what Mary's doing here. To magnify, to make bigger. My soul magnifies the Lord. Verse 46 and 47, poetically speaking, are are, are two verses that say the same thing. It's parallelism. She says it one way in verse 46, my soul magnifies the Lord. And for emphasis, she says it a different way in verse 47, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. She's saying the same thing, but what makes her say that? What is it? And here's the key part of the entire song, and so therefore the entire sermon. What causes Mary to go into this song of praise is an encounter with the holy. Now, literally, her encounter was with the angel. You can go back up in about verse 26, I think, is where that uh, narrative begins. But the angel is simply a messenger for God. 
Gabriel shows up and says, I have good news for you. I'm not sure Mary thought that was such good news when she first started hearing that, given her life situation. But by the time that encounter is over, we find her then saying essentially this, okay, if that's God's plan for me, then I embrace it. But now we're several verses into this, and Mary has had a chance to think about what God is doing. It is the encounter that drives the worship. Let me say that again, because that's as true today as it was then. It is the encounter with God that triggers the worship. I think that's important for us because so often we seem to rely on other things to fire up our worship. I don't know how you feel about the service that we've had this morning, but I was sitting over here finding it difficult to keep myself composed because of the clear message of God that ties to love and how we live our lives out. As we as a body of believers seek to connect people with the love and the life of Jesus Christ, we cannot do that if we don't have something to offer. And what we have to offer is more than just a religious system. What we have to offer people in the love and the life of Jesus Christ, especially as we come at Christmas time to underscore those things, is we have the opportunity for a genuine encounter with the living God through his son, Jesus Christ. And that encounter changes everything about us. Now, that was a great place for an amen. But that's right, we'll just move on. So what happens for us, I'm afraid, we learn something from Mary here, is that we get so caught up in the hectic season and the trappings of Christmas that we lose the encounter. And it's the encounter with God that triggers worship. We can jump through all of the hoops and Elvin and Steve and the rest of our musicians are incredibly talented. And if they wanted to, if they wanted to, they could craft a service that was so emotional that we could come out of here feeling like that we had had a great experience and still miss the encounter with God. True worship grows out of the encounter We find that with Mary as it leads into verse 46 and verse 47. But let's go back to verse 46. There's a couple of things I want to highlight for you here. In verse 46, our English translations, uh, yours may catch it, but some of them, because of the flow of this and some of the uh, scholarly discussions that go on, uh, I I just want to highlight a couple of things. I hate to do this. I really do hate to do this, but it's such a big part of our Bible study, and I always want to hand you tools for your Bible study, all right? So one of the ways that you can study Scripture on your own without the help of some, you know, some big-name Bible teacher, which is fine, but, you know, just sometimes just pick up God's Word and study. And when you do that, pay attention to the verbs because the verbs uh, are action words. and The verbs tell us something about what's going on here. And so in verse 46, we have a present tense verb. My soul magnifies the Lord. 
Our English translations don't always pick this up. Some of them will, but in verse 47, literally the word rejoices there, and it's stated in the present, but literally that word is a point-in-time kind of a verb. It occurred in a point in time. Now, we're tempted to make that a past tense, uh, like it happened and it's over, uh, but, and that's kind of the sense of it. But what we find here is the present tense says this is an ongoing thing. It's happening now, and it promises to continue to happen. Mary says, my soul magnifies the Lord. It is a perpetual state of worship, if you will. But this point-in-time verb that says rejoices is one that is really tied to what's happened with her. And it pictures for us this point after point after point after point. And that's why I say that this is actually a worship song here because it starts with the encounter. Gabriel says, you are blessed among all women. And he explains why that's true. And it's a point of rejoicing for Mary, but it is another point later and another point later. And we pick up in this latter part of chapter one, and she's still stringing together those points of worship. My heart, my spirit rejoices, rejoiced continually, if you will, in the Lord. It may not seem like much, but here's where I want you to kind of nail that down. Our worship experiences cannot be hit-and-run experiences. What I mean by that is if the only time you worship is when this church schedules a worship service, then I'm going to suggest that you're missing something about what worship is. It's not that you're wrong with that. It's just that there's more to it than that. The opportunity that we have when we come together, I heard one pastor say it this way, and I think he's spot on, is that we bring collectively our worship services throughout the week, and when we come together and gather, then it's a collective worship time. When is the last time you worshiped? When is the last time that you revisited one of those encounters with God and it drove you to your own song? Worship is not a hit and run experience. Worship lingers with us. That's what we find with Mary here. She had an encounter with Gabriel, who's a messenger of God, and the good news that would, uh, would be the good news of Jesus Christ, and it has legs with her time after time after time. My soul, my spirit rejoices time after time after time. So Mary writes a song that makes God large, magnifies him. She does so in two different ways. She reflects on, her, on God's character, but she also goes to God's activity. Now, probably later in the year, Elvin and I have been talking about this a little bit already, probably later in the year we'll do a full series on worship, biblical worship as we find it. And so we'll talk more about some of these things at that point. But one of the things that I would suggest to you in your personal worship experience is that you don't just spend time talking about what God has done and let that be what triggers all of your worship. Ultimately, we don't worship the acts of God. We worship God. 
And Mary tells us about that here. She goes to his character, but she also talks about his activity. That's seen in verses 48 through 54, and I'm not going to take the time to read through all of that right now, but I'm going to go back to say to you, when it comes to your personal Bible study, pay attention to the verbs. Because in this passage, verses 48 through 54, we find all kinds of verbs here that talk about God's actions. Verse 50, uh, his mercy is, is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Now we go to verse 51. He has shown strength. He has scattered the proud. Verse 52, he has brought down the mighty. Verse 53, he has filled the hungry. Verse 54, he has helped his servant as he spoke, etc. So what we find is this repetition, this rehearsal again of the character of God and the activity of God. And that causes Mary to go deeper into her attempt to magnify God, to make him larger. She starts on the personal side of things, the first few verses there. And then verse 50, she turns and she starts emphasizing God's activity for collected community of faith called Israel. It's a both and, not an either or. And the bottom line is that her encounter with God triggered all of those memories. As she looked back and saw God's hand on her work and on the work uh, and his work on behalf of his people, it causes her to worship. So let me give you, as we close here, let me just give you a few things to encourage you and to push you into some worship this season. My suggestion to you is that all of the Christmas music that we hear this time of year, it is everywhere you go. You go into a coffee shop, you go into a retail store. I started to name it out loud. I don't want you to know I went there. Uh, okay, Hobby Lobby. Um, it doesn't matter where you go. It doesn't matter where you go this time of year. You're going to hear Christmas music. And what's right about that is it can be a trigger for us in the middle of a crowd and a hectic season. It should trigger a thought to us to remember what God has done, to magnify him. Because at the core of what Christmas is all about is the king of kings laying in a manger so that you can have a relationship with God that sin destroyed. Let the songs of Christmas trigger worship for you. Five very quick suggestions for you. I'm not going to elaborate on these. I'm just going to lay them out there for you. Some practical uh, suggestions to help you position yourself for worship. First of all, carve out some time for some sp- and some space for God. I've said that in several different sermons this hectic season because that's hard for us to do. Carve out some time and some space so that you can hear. Secondly, take a Bible with you, but don't make it a Bible study. What I mean by that is when you go into those times that you carve out for time with God and to remember and reflect uh, there are some passages of Scripture that really are helpful just as a, as a quick reminder. For instance, uh, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable to you. Just a very quick Scripture verse that kind of trains your mind to, okay, this is serious time with God business. Third, I want to give you a prayer. Now, I'm, not one, I'm not big on you know, reading prayers and that kind of stuff. I'm okay with people who do. I'm just saying that's not necessarily my deal. But here's a prayer for you uh, as you go into that time with God. 
Open my eyes so that I can see your handiwork. The reality is that the handiwork of God is everywhere. In lives of people, in nature, in situations, as we were reminded in such a wonderful way. Mary, thank you for the ministry. Close closet. It's an incredible thing. Open my eyes, Lord, so that I can see those opportunities for an encounter with the holy. Number four, be receptive more than your verbal. What tends to happen when we go to prayer is we fill the space with our own words rather than listening to the words that really matter, which is the word that God has for us in that moment. So be receptive rather than verbal. And finally, just respond to God's presence. You don't have to come out of there with a book idea. You don't have to come out of there with a message for people around you. You need to come out of there having encountered the living God. The songs of Christmas are important. And they give us some focus that we didn't always have. When my dad uh, was about my age now, I guess, uh, he had what was, I don't know what it's called nowadays. It's called LASIK surgery then. Is that still what it's called where they go in and they fix your vision some? And so after he had it and he recovered, we went out to play golf. And uh, he made some kind of a comment. I said, what are you talking about? And he said, you know, since I had that surgery, he said, that golf ball looks huge now. (laughs) So an encounter with God is kind of like spiritual LASIK surgery. We go into that encounter and we have our, our idea of what God is and who he is. But when we encounter him for real, it just makes him bigger. And Mary and we say, our soul magnifies the Lord. May the music of the season drive you to worship. Let's pray. And as we pray, here's the invitation today. I don't know how long it's been since you had a genuine encounter with God. Not thoughts about God and not reading stuff about God, but a genuine encounter with a living God. I don't know how long it's been, but I'm pretty sure it's been too long. Even if it was yesterday, it's too long. We need this on a daily, regular basis. So my invitation to you, first of all, is if you don't know Jesus Christ, that at this point, at this moment that you would consider the claims that he makes of himself, the claims that history makes of him, and the testimony of most of us sitting in this room today that he is in fact God, and he will change your life because of his love and what he has to offer. Turn our lives upside down and make them what they're supposed to be. If you haven't had that encounter, then today I invite you to it because he's ready to give you that life. This invitation time is a perfect time for you to respond to his offer of life. And each of us will have ministers at each one of the aisles here. It's a little difficult down front, but we've got ministers at each aisle. We're here to talk to you, pray with you. And maybe in your life, you've known Christ for a long time, but worship is one of those things that is not really all that regular for you. Maybe today's a good time to commit yourself to take those steps to position yourself. Whatever it is, wherever God is in this time, in this moment for you, respond to his call. And so, Father, we ask that you would take this time and be glorified in it. 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing and you come.